This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. If you want to build a bridge, a long one, over a large body of water, or some reasonably impressive chasm, you'll want to build a suspension bridge. One of those with the towers on either side, sticking up from the water or hole in the ground, with the cables swooping down and up and down and up between them. And if you want that bridge to work, to hold the cars and the trucks and the minivans, to withstand a high wind, to keep standing during an earthquake or a tsunami, those towers need to stay still so the rest of the bridge can move a little bit. It's physics, just trust me. Those towers need to be anchored deep within the ground, so you will need to dig holes, which is hard enough to do in some rocky chasm in the Pyrenees of the Poconos, but in water, it's a whole other thing. So if you want to build a bridge over water, over the East River, between Manhattan and Brooklyn, say, and it's 1870, just, you know, to pick a number at random, you need to find a way to dig underwater. So fill a bathtub and take a glass and flip the glass over and push the glass to the bottom of the tub. There's air in the glass. There's water in the tub, but it can't get inside. You get it, it's a diving bell. And picture tiny people in that glass, chipping away at the porcelain or the vinyl at their feet with tiny picks and wee little shovels. Now, the air will run out of that glass, so you'll need a tube or a straw poking up through the top and up and out past the surface of the water to let the good air in and the bad air out while they tap away those tiny people with their tiny tools digging at the bottom of your tub for some reason. And that's the idea. You build a watertight chamber, you find a way to keep the air circulating within that chamber, and you push it down to the bottom, and you start to build your tower on top of it while the people inside dig away. Meanwhile, the increasing pressure of the growing tower helps push the chamber, which is called a caisson, deeper and deeper into the hole. So if you are going to build a bridge over the East River in 1870, if you are going to physically connect the island of Manhattan with Brooklyn on the opposite shore for the first time since the Pleistocene, if you are going to connect the two cities, open up a path for travel and trade and commuters and tourists and stroller-pushing Park Slope parents, you are going to need to build a roadway that is 1,600 feet long, with cables swooping from stone towers that rise more than 275 feet in the air. And you will need a caisson, built of wood and metal, a capsized ship of a thing. You will need to float it out to the middle of the river and sink it to the bottom, 80 feet down, and then start digging another 44 feet on the Brooklyn side, 78 feet on the Manhattan side, through mud and silt and stone, until you hit bedrock and you will need men to do the work. They were Irishmen, and Italians, and Germans mostly. New arrivals, new Americans, who would pile into boats for the first shift on a January morning, or just before dark for the second shift, or just before midnight for the third, and set out for the construction site, a few hundred feet from shore where the stone tower was beginning to rise from the water. And they'd step off and out onto the rough boards of the pier and descend one by one into a hole, into the darkness, a blast of heated air coming up from below, iron rungs beneath their boots, lunch pails clacking against the walls, men below and men above coughing and cursing, cracking jokes in unfamiliar tongues. And then they'd come to a hatch and turn a wheel and descend into an iron chamber and be sealed within. 
Down below this chamber, further still on the river bottom, 5,000 pounds of pressure pushed on every square foot of the timber caisson. It would have crushed it and the workers within, except pressurized air was pumped in. It balanced out the forces, kept the walls from blowing out and letting the river in, and it kept the men alive. But those men needed to be acclimated first to the conditions they would find below, and so they were sealed into this iron chamber. And in would rush the pressurized air up from a hole in the floor, and with it, the pain, this pressure, this pushing deep in your ears, starting fast and pushing hard, it would be excruciating. And then it would slowly release, though sometimes it wouldn't, and you'd be stuck all day with it in your head, even after you'd heard a tapping at the bottom of the metal cell, and the trap door at your feet had opened up, and a man streaked with grime and mud and sweat poked his head up into the chamber and beckoned you down into the caisson into another world at the bottom of the river and into the gloaming and the blue limelight flicker along the walls rippling in the water that pooled in the mud and the muck between the boards and the planks that crisscrossed the river bottom that creaked and splintered and sank beneath the feet of the men 225 at a time there in the caisson the roof a few feet above their heads pine beams sealed together with tar to keep the water out. In the 60,000 pounds of rock, the Brooklyn Tower, from crushing them while they worked. It was hot. 80 degrees at least, even in January. And wet. They'd sweat through their clothes before they'd barely started swinging pick or lifting a shovel, scooping up silt and sediment, chipping away at boulders left there by receding glaciers millennia before, coming upon fossils ferns and shells, and strange things long gone from the earth. There was this smell, which was kind of no smell. Something with the pressure in the air and your brain in that atmosphere seemed to trick the nose, which may have been for the best. What with the sweating men and smoke and the slime and the mud, and no bathrooms, just a dark corner, or a bucket, or this box they had, this contraption where you'd go in a trough. And then every now and then, everything inside would get whooshed up with the pneumatic tube and rocket the hundred-odd feet to the surface where it would all aspirate in a foul cloud above the river. And your voice wouldn't work right either. Your words would come out thin and high, like a girl's to their ears, which worked well enough to hear the unrelenting clang of metal on rock, the grunts and lamentations of laboring men digging away at the river bottom helping the caisson sink deeper and deeper, pushed down into the earth by the ever-growing weight of the ever-growing tower. Some weeks would go by and they barely would have sunk the thing six inches. All that digging, all that drilling, all that chipping, kicking sparks, all those times they had hit a stone and not known what lay below. If it would take you an hour to clear on your own, or if that was just what you and a dozen dudes would be doing for the next week, or six diving down blind into black pools, feeling around for dropped tools, eating your lunch from a tin, on a rock, in a box, a hundred feet, more, below the surface of the East River. Sometimes a big boat, a steamer or a freighter would pass by, and the displaced water would push against the sides of the caisson, and the board would snap and water would jet in and the chamber would start to fill, until men with hammers and pitch tar could plug it. 
Sometimes men would pass out or cry out at the pain in their ears and the pressure in their heads or their chest. Sometimes they would rise back to the surface out from the heat and into the cold, rise up too fast without being properly decompressed, get the bends, get air bubbles, little nitrogen bubbles in their blood, which is as painful as it sounds. And sometimes men wouldn't really recover. One day a fire broke out and it looked like the side of the caisson was going to blow in and the roof cave in and the tower come down and crush everyone inside. But it didn't. And the men came back to work the next day and went down into the hole, into that alien world. And again the next day. And again. And again. Think of a man who dug, who swung a pick, who bent to hoist a shovel full of river bottom, who hefted buckets of stone. Think of his shoulders and chest, triceps and lats, like stone. Think of his head on a pillow, packed with straw, in a boarding house at the end of the night. No aspirin, no ibuprofen, or Vicodin, or heating pads, just pain. Think of those shoulders and arms and joints within, of bursitis and micro tears, fraying tendons, rotator cuffs, no treatment, no insurance. Think of years living in that body after months working in that caisson. And think of a day in 1871 when the man in that body steps up through the hatch and into the air, cold on his skin, when he knows that the job is done, that he is done with the river bottom for good. There was a parade when they opened the bridge. On a spring day in 1883, a perfect day, they say, 14 years after they'd started construction, 14 years after the first men had gone down into the Brooklyn Caisson, eight years after the last men climbed out of the one on the Manhattan side, and they'd poured concrete down into the hole and sealed it up. 50,000 people came in from out of town, came in off boats from Connecticut and Massachusetts and Jersey. The president came up from D.C. People sold souvenirs. Bands played. There was bunting. It was a day for bunting. And little flags in little girls' hands. There were speeches and photographs and fireworks. And a quarter of a million people walking the bridge in its first 24 hours. Marveling at the thing. This thing they'd watched grow for years. For half their lives. For all their lives, depending. They could now walk from Manhattan to Brooklyn, see those towers up close, see their city from high up, higher off the ground than most of them had ever been, see seagulls and seabirds and terns turning beneath their feet. 250,000 people, the governor, the mayors, various dignitaries, prominent business owners, a who's who of people no one remembers now marveling at the thing in the river so far beneath their feet and with them somewhere there in the crowd men who could look down at the river and know just what lay beneath it
Thanks for sticking around for the credits. If you're a longtime listener to the Memory Palace, you'll know that I haven't ever done credits before. And there are two reasons for that. First, I like to end the show by letting the piece resolve completely, you know, um, giving it a little breathing room to sink in or whatever. So I've been kind of reluctant to do credits for what it's worth. So right now I'm trying to figure out how to maintain that same feeling, even in this new credits era. Might be a bit of a work in progress uh, on my part until I really figure out how it's going to work. So patience on that count, please. And second, I've never actually had anyone to credit before. And now I do. For seven years, the Memory Palace has been a one-man band. And now I've got a woman behind the board. So this episode was mastered by Kathy Tu, the brand new assistant producer at the Palace. I'm super excited to get a little help around here, but more excited that it's Kathy, who is an audio genius. This is really thanks to all the folks who donated to the Radiotopia fundraiser at the end of last year. I am able to hire Kathy because of you guys. I am able to commit to doing an episode every other week because of you guys. And a special thanks to donor Jez Burrows, whose most recent project, Dictionary Stories, is a collection of very short stories entirely composed of those example sentences from the dictionary. It's a cool idea, and it's at dictionarystories.com. So thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for listening. New episode in two weeks, and two weeks after that, and two weeks after that, and on and on and on.